You're listening to the Carleton University Political Science Podcast, brought to you by the Department of Political Science at Carleton University in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. I'm Asif Amit, one of the PhD students of the program. To look upon the cosmos is to gaze upon the ultimate gestalt. For some, space is the limitless horizon for human progress. It's our eventual destination. For others, it might just be the realm of science fiction and fancy, a place where the imagination runs wild. And yet for many others, it's merely a dark void, a vacuum full of stars. However, throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, space has emerged as one of the most important policy areas in contemporary governance. From communications and climate science to the recent controversies surrounding the Trump administration's campaign promise to build colonies on other planets, space represents a dynamic area of policy and international cooperation, and one that's generally pretty misunderstood. Is space the final frontier, politically speaking? To answer this question and many more as it relates to the politics of space, I'm joined this week by Kiernan McClelland. Kiernan's a PhD candidate here with the Department of Political Science at Carleton, specializing in the strategic application of space power in Canada and the politics of planetary defense. Kiernan, thanks for joining us here today. Thanks, sir. So, usually when someone thinks of space, this is me particularly, you know, you're, the imagery that comes to mind gets drawn from science fiction. But it's actually become a really important area of policy for a number of years throughout the 20th century in Canada and abroad. I was just wondering, through the years, how has space evolved as a policy area, and how have scholars sought to conceptualize it as a political terrain? So, a great question. Uh, In order to kind of uncrack this nut, we really have to go back to the beginning of the space race as we know it. And of course, any sort of discussion of the space race begins with Sputnik 1. The Russian probe launched on October 4th, 1957. After Sputnik was launched during this fairly tumultuous period of uh, early Cold War politics, the superpowers, particularly in in terms of space policy, suddenly identified space and the space environment as a domain of national interest and national prestige. Um, Yes, there were some significant strategic rationales for why the superpowers would see Sputnik and wish to initiate a more directed and sustained national space policy. But also there was a, a clear indication from the, from the Sputnik activity that there were then some sort of national kind of prestige and, and, and interest repercussions with the launch of this, that the technology being launched in space and specifically the, the Sputnik probe being the first man-made or human-made object to go to space was significant in its own right for defining the um, the kind of the power relations during the early Cold War period. And indeed, this kind of contributes to the character of space policy during the Cold War up until the fall of the Soviet Union. Space policy during the Cold War is very strategic focused and focused more or less between the two superpowers, between the United States and the Soviet Union. Um, and generally, the types of operations we would see during this period were ones that would capitalize upon two central tenets. One, which is this national commitment towards freedom of space. So being able to launch something as quickly as possible and being the first to do so. Whereas another tenant would be, you know, the use of space technologies had specific purposes. They had a very utilitarian function 
in providing benefits for either side during the Cold War. So the most prominent example that we can think of in, in this area is uh, military space technologies and uh, other reconnaissance systems. So spy satellites, for example. These systems were used routinely by both sides and were, were seen really as a, as a projection of a form, a projection of national power in space activities. But we also talk about the civilian space activities and, you know, specifically on the first tenant of emphasizing this freedom of access to space, space exploration really emerges as, as a key area of uh, space policy during the Cold War, particularly, you know, the country that is able to perform these space exploration activities, although they may be in the benefit of, um, of uh, society, would have significant international uh, a significant position within the international system as being a country that was first to perform these incredibly complex technological activities. And so this is where we kind of lead with the, um, you know, the famous JFK speech, the moon speech, where, you know, we choose not to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it is hard amongst other factors. So that's generally the Cold War. The Cold War is defined by kind of a similar type of space activity, one which is particularly geared towards a national commitment of, of freedom in space and of projecting national interest and prestige, but also one that is very utilitarian, but utilitarian in the sense of multiplying national space, or sorry, national assets, national security or military assets. So the reconnaissance systems, the nuclear command and control systems, those sorts of um, satellites. This space policy calculation, though, changes or at least starts to develop with the end of the Cold War. Um, and currently there is some debate on what exactly has shifted that conversation or the development of space policy during this period. What I like to suggest is that that utilitarian function shifted, it became easier to initiate. And this, in many ways, the, the, the ease of frequency in which these military space technologies could be exploited by not just the superpowers, but other uh, countries is a very clear shift on, you know, on how space activities were conducted. No longer were they just conducted by the superpowers, they could be conducted by other countries. So during Gulf War One in the early 1990s, there was a shift towards information technologies. This shift towards information technologies was used by uh, several of the countries engaged in the conflict. And it illustrated that these technology could be used by countries which were just the superpowers. The superpowers, specifically the United States at this period, did have a, um, a decisive advantage in the exploitation of these technologies, but the proliferation of it was becoming a lot more, um, a lot more pronounced. So the question then we have is what has changed? So what has changed now in the modern period versus the Cold War uh, period with national space activities? Well, the actors have changed. They're currently uh, in the space environment now. There is uh, an, a much more diverse set of active participants who are engaged in space activities. I mean, yes, we see the superpowers and other technologically advanced spacefaring states initiating space operations, but we also see new and emerging space states coming from around the world. We also see the uh, introduction of non-state actors, the private space sector. And 
the introduction of these groups have kind of contributed to the space environment being a more congested environment. Um, there's a lot more participants who are currently active within the domain, and that has a pronounced effect on our space policy considerations. Further to that, the increase of more actors within space has made it a or made space a much more contested and some would argue competitive domain. Space, uh, particularly outer space and the Earth orbits, it is limited real estate. So the more actors you have within the environment, the less area there is in which to operate. So this has also had an impact on space policy making in the 21st century specifically. Particularly, we have kind of very recently seen a shift in space policy considerations towards uh, maintaining space control. So rather than during the Cold War, this discussion of freedom of access to space, where just simply going to space was a Herculean effort, now a very important concern of a number of spacefaring actors is how to remain within the space environment, how to remain in an operating position for as long as possible within that domain. So we have really shifted away from you know, space policy being ex in the exclusive domain of the superpowers focused on going to space and demonstrating national prestige and interest to a much more uh, diverse catalog of space actors who are engaged in a variety of space operations, many of which, which are geared towards maintaining space control or at least operation within the environment for as long as possible. And one in which these actors need to be routinely engaging and actively engaging with other like-minded space actors. So I would say it's a little bit more complex than it was in the Cold War, but maybe that would be a little bit of an understatement for it. I mean, it's very, um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very complex environment. We'll leave it at that. So in recent years, a lot's been written, kind of the popular ether about space in regards to the Trump administration's motions towards developing a dedicated branch of the military solely for space. And obviously here I'm talking about the Space Force. But I'm wondering, in terms of this sort of contemporary state approach to space, is it militaristic? Is it exploratory? How does the state approach space today? So from the perspective of state decision makers, I think there is a common awareness, first and foremost, of the domestic and international benefits that space brings, particularly to societies. And in many respects, I think we're starting to, or, or society rather, is beginning to um, understand these benefits. And a lot of these benefits we may not really be aware of on a day-to-day -day basis. But really, in the 21st century, our interactions and our movements are all heavily dependent upon outer space, no matter which country you're in. I mean, satellite technologies are an inherent aspect of our daily lives. The use of internet and email is facilitated by these types of technologies. Telecommunications, weather and, and forecasting, disaster management. Uh, GPS is used routinely for navigation, traffic regulation, and other civil aviation applications. Space technologies also contribute to um, the precision timing of financial transactions and other uh, banking applications. In addition, satellites can also be used for geographical and, and topographical mapping, which can contribute to other aspects of society. Farming, fishing, 
oil and gas. The utilitarian functions of space technologies to 21st century society is, is expansive, as expansive, I would say, probably as outer space. But these utilitarian functions aren't just the only, you know, the only approaches that space brings to the, to the equation. I mean, space research and particularly uh, space exploration is incredibly critical for having us understand the fundamental scientific questions uh, of our world, of the universe, of where we came from. And I think there's a certain value um, that space exploration missions can play, especially from a state standpoint, from this realm. But all these utilitarian and scientific functions are really, you know, can be affected because of our increased reliance on space technologies. And in a way, our high dependency on space, especially over recent years, has meant that there is a growing vulnerability and a growing vulnerability, I would add, from military space activities and one which would have to be addressed with some sort of um, diplomatic or military channel. Uh, but this goes to a fundamental question of, you know, another common misunderstanding, right, which is also kind of related to the misunderstanding of what benefits satellite technologies have on, on people, but also a common misunderstanding of what exactly space militarization and space weaponization is. What I mean by space militarization is outer space having or being used as a domain for military purposes. Space weaponization, what I mean is the physical placement of weapons in outer space. And I think it's important to stress, especially when we're talking about contemporary political approaches, of spacefaring states, that there is a division here. There have been treaties that prevent the weaponization of space. That is to say the physical placement of weapons in outer space. However, outer space has long been militarized and it has been militarized since the Cold War. Now, a good example of this is GPS. GPS is a military technology or was originally envisioned to be a military technology. However, nowadays, we also use GPS for common societal function. We use it on our phones to go from point A to point B. So the division between space weaponization and space militarization is an important one in the context of the question because I, it illustrates that a militaristic militaristic with air quotations, contemporary political approach to space is routinely normal in some respects, um, in the sense that military space technologies are being used and exploited for the whole of society. So to answer your question, Asif, I think that, you know, a contemporary political approach to space is really as it always has been since the beginning of the space age, a very fluid and dynamic concept that can include a variety of different activities. It can include exploratory activities. It can include utilitary functions. And yeah, it can also include militaristic functions. It's just very expansive. So with the results of the American election finally becoming clear and the Democrats taking office again, I can't help but ask what does this mean for American space policy? Because you know, space was very much at the forefront of the Trump campaign towards the end with promises of missions to Mars and colonies on the moon. How's the Biden administration expected to approach space policy? So at the time of recording, and this happened last week, Joe Biden has uh, announced his NASA transition team. 
And there are a few uh, important individuals on the transition team who um, may indicate in which direction a Biden space strategy or policy would go towards. Um, the first and most significant name on this list is actually Ellen Stofan. Um, Ellen Stofan is a former NASA chief scientist who has been uh, working for the Smithsonian Aerospace Museum. But other members on the transition team include uh, several astrophysicists, some space policy strategists, and even climate researchers. So taking into account those personnel that we are aware of and the positions that have been filled, we can speculate on what a Biden space policy would look like. But we can also be a little bit more assured in our predictions based on the past space policy priorities that have not just been supported by the Democratic Party, but have also been supported by the Republican Party. Because sometimes the space policy areas, especially in outer space, don't really differ from either party. It's a, it's a policy area which sees significant support as opposed to other areas. Um, and there are you know a few differences here and there, but not too many. So the first priority um, that the Biden administration will likely uh, support is going to be reintroducing or refunding NASA's climate research program. Prior with the Obama administration, um, NASA's climate uh, change research office or the Earth Sciences Division office rather were funded uh, considerably in order to conduct uh, a variety of planetary warming uh, exercises, operations that would um, that would map uh, climate uh, and project climate research. The Obama administration was a very keen supporter of this type of mission. Obama, for example, requested over $2 billion in funding for NASA's uh, Earth Sciences Division back during the 2017 fiscal year. However, the Trump administration has, uh, by contrast, been consistently less, uh, less anxious to fund the Earth Sciences Division as the Obama administration was. For example, the, Na the NASA's um, Earth Sciences budget for 2020 was approximately 1.78 billion, uh, which is around 140 million less than in 2017. Now we're talking in terms of millions as opposed to billions, so support is still there, but you know, it, 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 the fact that it was consistently receiving less funding is, is a indication of, of where the Trump administration um, fell on their, on, their, on their opinion of the NASA's uh, Earth Sciences budget. Um, so what can we expect from a, Bi a Biden administration or prospective Biden administration with this? Well, we can probably assume that a Biden administration would likely align its platform back towards a Barack or excuse me, an Obama administration um, commitment towards the NASA Earth Sciences Office. And indeed, uh, this commitment would likely align with the 2020 platform from the Democratic Party, which promised to support NASA's uh, Earth observation missions in order to specifically conduct climate uh, change missions in order to understand the impacts that climate change have on Earth. So I, it's probably a very confident uh, speculation to make that the Biden administration will likely uh, up the funding back towards NASA's Earth Science mission in order to increase the number of climate uh, change missions, which is, I think, pretty pretty great in any ways. A utilitarian function is always great. 
Moving on, though, the second priority that the Biden administration is likely to support is one that is shared by every subsequent U.S. presidential administration in the 21st century vis-a-vis outer space activities. And that's continued support for U.S. commercial space industry. Um, The Trump administration has been very uh, keen to increase the competitiveness of uh, American space industry. And in many respects, they have been successful in that regard. We can look at you know, uh, SpaceX or Boeing. These sorts of organizations have all kind of spurred this recent renaissance in American space industry where you know, more private missions are launching and more private uh, assets are being placed into orbit. Um, this commitment though, uh, that the Trump administration has committed to to increase uh, support for the commercial space industry is one which is actually consistent with the previous Obama administration and also is consistent with the uh, Bush administration as well, albeit in the terms of the Bush administration, a little bit less pronounced with where the targeted support would be. Trump administration and the Obama administration have been fairly um, active in supporting most areas of the U.S. commercial space industry. So everything from satellites to reusable launch vehicles to uh, rockets, all these sorts of systems are being supported by these groups. We are then likely to assume that the Biden administration will continue to support or encourage commercial space activities in space from American soil. Um, In many respects, a lot of the current NASA private space missions, specifically NASA's commercial crew program, will likely still move ahead because at the end of the day, you know, and this has been a quote from an individual on one of Biden's team, Consistency of the U.S. space industry is key. So the Biden administration will likely support uh, these continued commercial space activities from the U.S. The third priority which uh, the Biden administration is likely to support is with respect to the International Space Station. Now, to preface this priority, nothing concrete has been stated as of yet on what the Biden administration policy would be with respect to the International Space Station. However, we can speculate. And so according to some individuals with some sort of familiarity in Biden's anticipated space agenda, the International Space Station is likely to receive a funding extension. Um, Many of your listeners may know that the uh, Trump administration had a plan uh, to turn over control of the ISS to private space companies starting in 2025. What this will likely mean for the Biden administration is rolling back of this uh, commitment and instead putting some more money into the International Space Station. However, this leads directly to the fourth priority, which is the Biden administration's Um, perspectives on space exploration, particularly lunar and Martian exploration. Now, we all know that in March of 2019, Vice President Mike Pence vowed that the Trump administration would land on the moon by 2024. Um, First and foremost, a Biden administration will likely push back this intended activity by several years. And again, this is speculation, but we're likely to see um, the the mission pushed back per the House Science Committee's proposal bill to at least 2028. Um, In addition, it's important to note that uh, Stofan 
uh, who's the chair of Biden's NASA transition team, had helped uh, NASA develop many plans for commercializations of space flight as well as human missions to the Mars and Moon. What this means, though, is that the Biden administration is still going to be supporting these types of activities, particularly the Artemis program. So the Artemis program, which is the mission to uh, return to the moon, has seen significant international cooperation over the last uh, several months. Countries such as Canada, uh, Japan, and intergovernmental organizations like the European Space Agency uh, have all signed on as partners in the construction of the Lunar Gateway, which is a lunar outpost designed to support um, multiple expeditions to the lunar surface, which is a part of the Artemis program. Because these countries have signed on and so much political work has gone into organizing this initiative, it's very unlikely that a Biden administration would suddenly pull back and rescind the U.S. participation from this initiative. And furthermore, speaking uh, about, you know, where American presidents have traditionally stood on space exploration, especially in the 21st century, the idea of extending to Mars and beyond has always been a, a fundamental aspect of, um, of most U.S. presidential space strategies. And further to this point, it has been an area where uh, significant work over the past couple of years have been worked on. So although, you know, the, the rhetoric of the Trump administration was very pointed in some respects on, on the urgency to get to Mars and the moon, the work ha was occurring behind the scenes well before the Trump administration made the announcement. So will the Biden administration continue to initiate space exploration missions, my guess would be more than likely. Um, they will continue to push for the moon and for Mars. This leads to the final priority that the Biden administration will likely push, which is military space activities. This one has, again, not been substantiated yet. There is nothing within the open source which would um, indicate this. This is just merely speculation in my assessment as, a, as an academic. But in a similar reason as space exploration missions, which have seen significant um, international cooperation, are not likely to be canceled by the Biden administration just because of all the work that has gone in, a space force is likely to continue. What the space force has done, well, beyond the space force being a concept, which again, is not a new concept to the Trump administration, the space force or the idea of the space force actually extends back to the 1980s and has in various reiterations up until the present day been supported or, or you know, contemplated by US presidents, Democratic and Republican and the like. Um, what the Space Force has done has, in, has essentially been to increase the bureaucracy and the efficiency in which the U.S. conducts space operations. It's unfortunately none of the really cool stuff you read in the news. No space marines, no, you know, fighting the aliens, none of that stuff. At the end of the day, it's just boring bureaucratic reorganization and operationalization of existing assets to make it more efficient. So because all this work has gone into developing the capability of the Space Force, it is very unlikely that a Biden administration would seek to disband the U.S. Space Force um, because of the work that it has done. And further to that point, there's a few areas in which 
Um, it's very unlikely that a space force would even be, would ever really be disbanded. Um, you can use this sound clip if, uh, if they ever are disbanded and, you know, my mistake. But the first um, indication which makes me think that the Biden administration would keep the Space Force is that no U.S. military armed forces branch has ever been disbanded in the history of the United States. Okay. And by disbanding the Space Force, you would be opening up a can of worms that several of the other branches probably wouldn't want to talk about. We always look at the Marines, right? It's the Marines in the room are kind of sweating on whether or not, you know, that the, the disbandment of the Space Force would lead to, to that. But that's not my, uh, my expertise. Um, so, yeah, so, so a, you know, the Space Force being disbanded is very unlikely because no U.S. Armed Forces branch has ever been disbanded in the history of the United States. So that's the first reason. Uh, the second reason is that uh, there, are, there are significant operational and bureaucratic difficulties in re-establishing the Space Force within the U.S. Air Force. Um, and these difficulties would likely lead to operational inconsistencies, would likely lead to um, a decrease in you know, the capacity of the Americans to, um, to organize their space operations efficiently. And honestly, from a strategic standpoint, it really doesn't make a lot of sense to be, you know, you've established this very, you know, projected capability to then just fold it again to make it much less efficient than it was. So this is to say a Biden administration, like a space exploration uh, commitment, will likely support military space activities, particularly the Space Force uh, primarily because it uh, it has been established and it's, and it's working so far. You really kind of burst my bubble there with Space Force, man. I was always envisioning colonial Marines going to planets and fighting the aliens. Now it's just bureaucratic. Yeah, it, it really is. And I mean, to speak maybe a little bit on Space Force, um, you know, Space Force in many ways is, a, is an idea that has been around for decades. The, the establishment of some sort of new space branch is a concept that while beginning as science fiction, sure, during, you know, maybe the 1960s, uh, as, you know, modern militaries and particularly the American military became more technologically developed, made a lot more credible sense. You know, space assets previously were under the individual jurisdiction of several departments within the U.S. military. So, you know, the Navy would have some, Marines would got some, Air Force would have a few here and there. And so tasking satellites, for example, was incredibly difficult, right? You would have to like go through several channels in order to organize one overpass. And that was just inefficient. Um, what the Space Force does at the end of the day is take most space operators from across the U.S. Armed Forces and place them under a single house, which in an increasingly complex space environment where there are more actors and by more actors also more adversaries having more you know tailored space operators whose only job is to to conduct space operations is much more efficient than having several departments all contributing um, different personnel to a single mission 
And so in many ways, I think, you know, again, the rhetoric that the Trump administration had with Space Force was pronounced and was in many ways, it conjured up images of science fiction. But honestly, Space Force and the idea of Space Force, like so many hardworking people were working behind the scenes before the Trump administration to develop some sort of more efficient space organization. It just so happened that it was the Trump administration to be the, the administration to introduce this topic into the public light. So it's, uh, it, its primary mission, which is to boldly go where no one has gone before, uh, that is to you know operationalize space and to um, to to increase space operation efficiency um, has so far been uh, fairly successful as was intended and as has been worked on for a few years. Well, I appreciate the Star Trek reference there because you know I me, mean, I'm a big sci-fi fan. I grew up liking Star Trek, and you know, I always kind of looked at Starfleet as being this sort of universalist paradise, right? This great collective effort of the expanse of humanity and really beyond just humanity. And I can't help but wonder if space policy networks and the governance of space, for lack of a better term, are these that sort of universalist multilateral endeavor, or are there kind of major players who do their own thing separately? It's a very uh, interesting and and complex question. Uh, Something I tell people is that the one thing harder than rocket science is having people agree on international space (laughs) law. Nice. It's, uh, It's very... You know, it's a very complicated topic, but we can look at it from a historical angle. So let's go back to the Cold War. There are rules that rules and treaties that were established during this period uh, that attempted to dictate a common set of rules of behavior for state actors in space. So the most prominent of these treaties are the Outer Space Treaty, the Liability Convention, and the Registration Convention. Each of these treaties were meant to to define outer space as a peaceful domain of human interaction and of activities. However, going back to the beginning of this discussion, let's recall the context of the Cold War in which these rules were established. At this time, when the Outer Space Treaty and Liability Convention and Registration were, um, were constructed, only a very few countries were actually involved and had space assets in the orbits. And what this means is that, you know, the rules are in many respects geared towards those particular actors. So a more prominent example is Article 4 in the Outer Space Treaty, which is known as the No Bombs in Orbit Provision. Famously, it is a a section of the Outer Space Treaty which prohibits the use of weapons of mass destruction, so which have been commonly interpreted as radiological, bacteriological, and nuclear within outer space. What though this contributed to in the long run was the superpowers developing different sorts of space technologies and particularly military space assets that weren't uh, didn't you know? Wouldn't project power through those technologies, but we can project power through other means: through detection, through uh, sensors, through, uh, in the most extreme cases, physical kinetic strikes on other in in flight assets. Um, this is where the the absence of uh, of international space law is most um, is most prevalent. Uh, however, especially within the modern era. 
because more countries have kind of developed their space assets and you have a greater number of private actors who, are, who have entered space, there is ongoing discussion on, on new terms and rules of behavior in order to provide a common set of rules for space-sharing states in the 21st century. A recent initiative that was uh, introduced back in August of this year, where the UK uh, initiated a draft UN resolution, which essentially called on a global discussion on what the exact character uh, and exactly what responsible behavior in space looked like. I think it's important to note here that, you know, to kind of maybe dial back a little bit, that in the 21st century, space behavior has often been disagreed. You will have several different uh, states who will agree upon different um, interpretations of what behavior in space is. And behavior in space is everything from how close your satellite can fly to my satellite to when do you deorbit your satellite? Because space, as I mentioned, is a, uh, is a finite environment. There's only so much real estate you can have. So establishing rules for when do you deorbit things and also space um, debris mitigation plans on if there is a collision that occurs in space, who is going to be the one uh, paying for the damage? How are we going to clean it up and how are we going to operate? In the 21st century, countries, for the most part, have so far disagreed on these fundamental problems and questions on, on how to on how to conduct these operations. So in August of this year, the UK initiated a draft UN resolution, which called on a more directed global discussion on what exactly responsible behavior in space looked like. Um, all countries of the UN were invited to take part in the discussion and in many ways submit their views um, to the draft. At the beginning of the month in November, the draft resolution has been partially adopted. So it is likely to be heading to the General Assembly Plenary Committee in the next few months. And generally, it's a step in the right direction. It indicates a concerted effort to bring together the states of the world to develop a new, robust uh, set of norms and rules for delineating what is responsible behavior which um, in addition to supporting other UN initiatives at the time, such as the Committee on the Peaceful Use of Outer Space's guidelines for long-term sustainability of outer space activities, um, is a good means of developing a, a rule or a set of rules for conducting safe and, you know, prosperous space op operations, not just for the space powers, but for all any spacefaring actor within the world. And uh, personally, I think it's a, it's a great step in the right direction and more in line with that um, Star Trek universalist paradise as if that, uh, that you have been alluded to. It's the hope, man. Yeah. I'm interested to find out how does Canada play into the governance of space? Does it engage in these space policy networks? Canada is a significant partner and a significant actor in outer space. Starting in September uh, 26, 1962, Canada was actually the third country ever to launch a satellite into low Earth orbit with the Alouette 1 system. We have also conducted a variety of international space activities 
throughout our, um, our time and space, the most prominent being the uh, Canada Arm and the International Space Station. Uh, Canada is also very uh, vocal when it comes to the United Nations. Uh, Canada is a signatory member of the Outer Space Treaty, the Liability Convention, and the Registration Convention. However, it's also important to note that Canada is also a member of NATO and of NORAD, which both have military space contingents. NATO specifically has established its military space priority um, fairly recently during the summer of this year. Now, all of these efforts have been meant, these bilateral and bilateral um, multinational uh, efforts have been instituted by Canada to advance its interests in space and ultimately to help promote international cooperation in the space domain. So in many respects, Canada has remained a very engaged member of the international spacefaring community, starting from the beginning of the Cold War to the present day. And we will likely to continue to remain a uh, fairly influential member as we move forward into the next couple of years. So it's interesting. We kind of spoke earlier about the sort of sensationalism of you know, contemporary issues in space by the Trump administration in terms of colonizing planets and such. You know, moving away from that, though, I'm wondering, in your view, what do you think are the most pressing issues of our time regarding space? So the big issue I see emerging corresponds really to the increase in the number of state and non-state actors in space. As I mentioned, space is seen to be congested, competitive, and contested. I would agree with this statement to a certain extent. And in many respects, this issue kind of leads to two primary policy issues that relate to space policy and where space policy is going. One of these issues relates to the environmental impact of conducting operations in outer space. And the other issue relates to the establishment of international rules of conduct that determine what sort of behavior is tolerated within outer space. So I'll start with the first one. So the first issue I see as emerging in the future in outer space is the space debris problem. And the space debris problem is, uh, is fairly interesting and it's very much tied to that congested element of space. Fundamentally, the space debris problem is tied to the increase in the number of space objects in low Earth orbit and you know, the other orbits, medium Earth orbit, geosynchronous orbit, et cetera. Um, essentially, the problem holds that as the number of space objects grows in these domains, the greater the chance the collisions of these space assets will be, okay? The more things you have in space, the higher the likelihood these systems, there is a risk that these systems will collide with one another. The collision of these objects in space is directly related to an effect known as the Kessler syndrome. The Kessler syndrome was famously portrayed in popular culture by uh, the movie Gravity, uh, but essentially it holds as this. When you introduce more debris or more space assets into the Earth orbits, the likelihood of these orbits colliding increases. As these objects collide, they create space debris, pieces of, uh, of satellite debris, which can be you know, as big as a basketball or even larger, as big as a van in some cases, 
or as small as a microscopic grain of sand. Each of these pieces of debris have the potential to cause significant damage to all other space assets in the orbits. Now what the Custler syndrome holds is that when a collision occurs, more debris is created, more debris is created, the increase in collision increases. The increase in collision increases, more collisions occur, more debris is created, the increased risk of collision increases again. So it's very much a snowball effect in outer space where the more debris we have, the higher the likelihood we will not be able to use space because space may reach a cascade effect where we are no longer able to conduct routine operations in the environment in a safe function in order to assure that space debris are not um, disrupting or destroying our assets. And as I was alluding to earlier, as if with the entire societal benefits that space assets bring, a Kessler syndrome scenario where, you know, space is covered with space debris takes all of those things offline or at least disrupts them considerably. So in many respects, we really need to consider the space debris problem. How do we mitigate debris? How should we mitigate debris? Because you know, there are a number of initiatives currently out there to, um, to attempt to, um, to try and mitigate the amount of debris in the orbits. Some using space technologies, others relying on uh, orbital debris to take its natural course and deorbit. Now, I will mention that orbital debris uh, below 600 kilometers takes up several years to burn. Um, so it isn't just immediate. You can't just, you know, a space debris isn't something that just falls, you know, out of the sky like that. It takes years to fall down the gravity well. So the pressing need to address the space debris problem and not just address the space debris problem by adding lip service to it, but developing technologies and like practical solutions in which to limit the amount of debris within this domain, I honestly think is one of the most pressing space policy issues of our time. Related to this issue is what I kind of alluded to earlier, which is kind of connected to the space debris problem in a respect um, of how do we establish international rules of conduct for delineating behavior in outer space. And I'll speak directly to space debris mitigation because historical precedent, a number of emerging spacefaring states that have launched assets over the past several years have launched assets which have, got, which have gotten offline. They've become um, inoperable um, for one reason or another. This essentially creates new space debris, which is uh, which is coalescing with what we call legacy space debris. So, uh, thing you know, space rocket bodies from the uh, from the uh, early space age in the 20th century. You know, the, the infamous astronaut gloves, which are flying around. All these things are still up there. So, we're having new and emerging countries, you know, exercising their right to launch new their own technologies to outer space. But their technologies are not at a level where they are fully operational at the moment. Um, so the challenge is this, from an international perspective, how do we provide these emerging spacefaring states and actors the opportunity to launch to space while also assuring the most stringent space mitigation guidelines are adhered to? And this isn't an easy question because some countries may not even choose to sign on to these mitigation guidelines um, or space debris mitigation guidelines. 
uh, because they may cite, well, you know, during the Cold War, during the, the 20th century, um, you know, you were able or your country was able to launch satellites to outer space and you have an infrastructure which is tied around satellites. Now it's our turn to launch satellites into outer space. So, you know, why, why are you in a position to tell us how we conduct our space activities? But this kind of goes back again to that kind of humanitarian question, because at, at one point we need to kind of, again, it's easier said than done. And, you know, there's a reason why agreeing on international space law is as hard, if not harder, than rocket science. And that is because, you know, different countries have different thresholds and the humanitarian argument in some respect may not hold. In a perfect world, it would, but we don't live in a perfect world. So that is another challenge that we see kind of emerging in outer space. Uh, beyond that, I would just, you know, maybe throw some uh, lip service towards the role of uh, extraplanetary colonization. A very important question we need to be asking ourselves from a space science policy standpoint is, or even from, a, even from an ethics standpoint, I think, is what does it mean for humankind to go to another surface beyond Earth? Um, in many respects, you know, if we were to go to Mars, what does that mean? Should we be bringing the problems of Earth, societal, environmental, whatever you want to name, those issues, should we be extending them to Mars or even closer to Earth, to the moon? Or should we be, um, you know, establishing rules of the road to, um, to delineate these bodies with some sort of special privilege. I don't know. Um, but uh, it's definitely going to be a topic which will be discussed, especially as the international community moves more towards um, sustained space exploration activities and particularly lunar exploration missions. I, I think that it's going to be a question, you know, a, as important as the scientific questions of how do we colonize the moon or how do we colonize Mars, we need to be asking the uh, social, the political, and the ethical questions. Should we be going to Mars? How do we go to Mars? How do we do it? In, like, what is what is territoriality and sovereignty look like on an extraterrestrial body? Do rules, international law established on Earth, should it apply to outer space? Um, these are all questions I think we need to be um, we need to be asking ourselves in the next couple of years. The last question I'd want to ask you about is about your research. You know, you and I kind of came up together. We're both in the same cohort in our fourth year in the PhD program at Carleton. What have you been working on these days? Tell us about your research. Well, it's a very dangerous question to ask, uh, as you know. <laughs> you know, what are what are you working on? Well, my my dissertation, I would tell my um, my uh, supervisor. But uh, to get into a little bit more specifics, uh, currently I'm just working on my research related to my dissertation topic. Um, my research focuses on space policy logics and intergovernmental collaboration within Canada's national space community from the beginning of the space age to 2010. Um, in layperson's terms, I'm essentially looking at what makes the Canadian space community tick. How does the Canadian space community interact with one another is the fundamental practical question I'm trying to answer. Now, obviously, as if, as you know, um, being uh, being in our position, we do need to apply some sort of, you know, theoretical uh, framework to the study of this. So I've opted to use securitization theory from the Copenhagen School to account for this uh, deviation 
in the Canadian case study, um, and essentially to determine the underlying policy logics and the speechjacks that have directly directed the Canadian National Space Program and its activities. So everything from Canada Arm to the International Space Station, I'm kind of using securitization theory to uh, to explore the the relationships between uh, functional actors and the reference objects, that is, these space activities. Fundamentally, this research is pushing the traditional argument uh, in space policy literature, which argues that space and space programs are funded based on either a realist or a neoliberal rationale. That's to say that states really only fund space programs for selfish gains. You know, they're, they're only supporting it in order to push the national interest or prestige. Um, my research, though, uh, shows that the construction of space policy issues is, in fact, much more dynamic and can include a much more um, a much more expansive group of topics and rationales that have previously been discussed. So, yes, you have a national interest and national prestige rationale, but in some cases, especially in the case of Canada, an educational rationale may take precedent or a economic and sectoral uh, rationale may take precedent. So kind of the fundamental area which I'm trying to look at is, okay, so how are those, like who are the people making those particular claims? Are the speech actors who are making, you know, national prestige and interest claims the same across all national space activities? Do they change? Um, you know, do, do certain speech actors who would advocate a national prestige um, perspective in one case advocate a educational or environmental rationale in another case? Um, and then mapping this over the course, the entire course of the Canadian space program. So it's a lengthy undertaking. Um, I'm excited to be working on it. It is nearing close to completion. However, COVID-19 has kind of put a, uh, a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a pause on how I get information, but I'm anxious to share more as it uh, comes out. Uh, in addition, I, uh, I have a book coming out. Um, I was an assistant editor with uh, Dr. Cassandra Steer and Dr. Matthew Hirsch in producing a new book for Oxford University Press. Uh, the book title is War and Peace in Outer Space, Law, Policy, and Ethics. If you enjoyed any of the conversation I was uh, blathering about today, I would strongly advise you consider uh, reading the book. We cover a variety of contemporary policy, law, and uh, ethics topics from a variety of spacefaring states, including Canada. In addition to that, uh, we are hoping to have this book uh, released by December 28, 2020, and uh, available online uh, sometime near the end of November. And if you want to know more details on when the book is going to be released, uh, I do have a Twitter handle, at Canuckanaut. I'll be uh, posting routine updates on the book and happy to engage in any sort of space policy discussions on uh, on there. Excellent. Well, that sounds great. I mean, when it comes out, man, you make sure to send me the link and I'll pick that up because this talk has been great and just be great to read more about it too. No, absolutely. And I mean, space is, at the end of the day, a new and emerging topic within social sciences research, right? And that's what makes it so cool. Right. Like it, it, it's a topic that has been around that has influenced our lives, you know, since our grandparents times and our great grandparents times in some cases. It's, it's an area of human interaction that we are only beginning to scratch the surface on. And 
really it's it's this area that I would I would strongly recommend to anybody interested. If you are interested in space and you are a social scientist, you can study this topic. You know, you don't have to be a scientist to know space. You just need to have the um, the ambition and the enthusiasm to tackle the topic. And I can assure you from having done this now for upwards of a decade, you're learning stuff new every day and things constantly surprise you. And from a perspective of the social sciences research, there's a lot of fertile analytical ground you can look at, right? You can, you can take things like securitization theory and you can apply it to space activities. You can take identity politics and explain it to the politics of emerging spacefaring states. And you know that kind of diaspora between the traditional spacefaring countries and in, in Western society and the emerging spacefaring states and that kind of relationships. Really, at the end of the day, it's just another area that we can look at and another area, yeah, another area of social interaction. So, um, if you would like to hear more, I would uh, strongly advise uh, seek out your nearest library or watch uh, Star Trek episodes if you're if you want the yeah, idea juices to be flowing. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter at CU underscore poli sci, on Instagram at CU underscore poli dot sci, and on Facebook at carltonu.polysci.